Welcome to the Lend Academy podcast, episode number 226. This is your host, Peter Renton, founder of Lend Academy and co-founder of the Lend at Fintech conference. Today's episode is sponsored by Lend at Fintech USA, the world's largest fintech event dedicated to lending and digital banking. It's happening on May 13th and 14th, 2020 at the Javits Center in New York. Lending and banking are converging and Lend at Fintech immerses you in the most important trends of the day. Meet the people who matter, learn from the experts and get business done. Lend at Fintech, lending and banking connected. Go to lendit.com USA to register. Today on the show, we have a special guest, someone who I would even say has become a bit of a legend in the fintech space. I'm delighted to welcome Steve McLaughlin. He is the founder and CEO of FT Partners. Now, FT Partners is a boutique investment bank focused exclusively on the fintech space, and it's been around since 2002. So Steve was really thinking about fintech before any of us, pretty much, and I wanted to get Steve on the show. Obviously, they're in many of the big deals that happen in fintech, uh, facilitated via FT Partners. So he's got an incredible perspective on the industry. We want to talk about that, talk about the trends that he's seeing. We talk about his the research reports that come out on a regular basis from FT Partners and what goes into them. We talk uh, about valuation and the sort of the different ways that the private markets and public markets look at that. We talk about SoftBank, we talk about M&A, and much more. It was a fascinating interview. Hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the podcast, Steve. Well, thanks for, for having me on, Peter. My pleasure. Okay, so what way I'd like to get these things started is just giving the listeners some background. I know you've been doing FT Partners for many, many years, but let's just take us back to what you did before you started that and what you've done in your career to date. Sure. I started at Goldman Sachs uh, initially as a summer associate in 1994, then started full-time in 95 in New York City in Goldman's Financial Institutions Group. This is, I guess, back when it was pre-public, still a private company run by 118 partners at the time. But I got put into the Financial Services Group, and that was, uh, you know, 95 during the, the pretty big boom in M&A and capital raising for banks, insurance companies, brokers, asset managers, and it was pretty much the busiest shop on the planet mm-hmm. for all that kind of stuff. But as you can imagine, given it was 1995, we also saw the beginnings of you know everything around the internet you know, creeping into financial services. So there was you know any anything you could think of dot com and financial services, mortgage dot com, lending dot com, insurance dot com, and bank dot com, and bank net. You name it. Uh, there was hundreds of companies, and so. Uh, you know, that's what I started to focus on. It was an area of the world that, you know, mostly was undiscovered because most of the companies had no to very little revenues back in the day. But that was back when we started seeing uh, the sh- first signs of the Charles Schwab going online and SkyTrade and E-Trade and Ameritrade and so on and so forth and all the stock exchanges getting uh, electronified and, and digitized. And so uh, I was in the middle of all that. And was really one of the only people at Goldman, let alone on the street, focused on uh, that area of fintech. And uh, that became 100% of what I was doing. And I was either running or co-running the fintech group, you know, towards the end of my tenure there before leaving in uh, 2002 to start FT Partners. 
Okay, so then what was it that, I mean, you know, you were really ahead of your time in many ways because you know, fintech wasn't even a term back then. Obviously, there was financial technology, but why decide back then? What was the thinking behind, you know, starting your own, your own firm, you know, back in 2002, and this is sort of obviously coming out of a recession. Why do it then? Sure. Well, I saw just a huge, huge opportunity in fintech. Again, like you said, it wasn't called fintech back then. We called it financial technology, which is the name of the company, Financial Technology Partners. So mm-hmm. from 02, that's been the moniker. And so, you know, but but I just saw a tremendous amount of inefficiency, you know, in the system. I mean, really, uh, you know, even even today, I think that the, the opportunity is, is way larger than what we're seeing, you know, in the market. And people think it's large today. So, you know, back then, uh, it was it was pretty clear to me, but it was also clear to me there weren't any investment bankers that were that focused on it, and it mm-hmm. certainly wasn't an independent boutique focused on the space. And so, you know, I thought that that was a great combination of you know, picking a, a great space that nobody was covering. And a space is actually quite hard to cover because it, it covers a lot of different disciplines from, mm-hmm. like I said, all the different pillars of financial services, but all the different technology types. So it's, you know, it's quite complicated. And then you also got, you know, the big banks, people coming at it from a lot of different directions. If it's an insure tech company, you might have an insurance banker coming at it. You might have an IT services banker. You might have an internet banker. And then on the research side, you know, there's sort of a fight for, you know, the clients wanting to be covered from more of the tech side, but some of the companies getting pushed over into the financial services research coverage. So there was a lot of, you know, internal difficulty in terms of people organizing. You still see it today. You see a lot of the big banks don't really have a cohesive fintech group mm-hmm. around the world. And there actually isn't a single investment bank that even has a single fintech group around the world. They're, they're fairly fragmented where people in Brazil, you know, aren't talking to the people in New York and not talking to people in London. And certainly people in the tech group aren't talking to people in the fig groups of these, of these firms. And so it just creates a lot of you know, uh, disjointedness and in, in the client coverage and, and the knowledge base. So, you know, I just saw as a huge opportunity and really fast forward 18 years, it's still as messy as it was back then. So we're, right. we're, you know, we're about 160 people today focused hundred percent on FinTech and you know, that compares to just a few people focused on the space at any other given bank, including the big guys. So, right. you know, it's, uh, it's an all-out effort here. Right. And, so, and, and where, I know you're, you're, you have a global focus these days, so where are your offices located? Yeah, so we are, uh, we've always been sort of headquartered in San Francisco, but then about five or seven years ago, we opened up a New York office, and then we had a, a London opening a couple of years ago. So we're sort of spread between San Francisco, New York, and London. San Francisco is probably 80 people today, New York probably 50, and, and London uh, 30, up from zero a couple of years ago. So, um, And then we're covering, like you said, the world. You know, We have a billion-dollar deals and, and startups on really all continents other than Antarctica. So we just uh, announced it. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Uh, we haven't gotten into Antarctica fintech yet. But you know, we just announced a, a fairly large uh, investment from Visa into a company called InterSwitch, uh, which is a, one of the most valuable companies in Africa now. You know, we have, uh, we're working on a digital bank uh, project in, in Southeast Asia. Uh, we're selling a, a significant payments company in, in Australia in a couple billion dollar range. And so really, uh, and they worked on the Stone IPO last year in Brazil. Mm-hmm. So, you know, really, you, you pick your continent, we're there, we're doing things. So it's, uh, 
exciting times. Mm-hmm. FinTech knows no bounds, I guess. Right, right. And yeah, one thing that I've, I've always appreciated, and I know many others as well, are these, your, your research reports. You do these quarterly FinTech research reports and you do other, other industry reports. And I just saw in my inbox, this morning, a African fintech report, and these are these are not just five to ten page reports. These are you know, hundred plus pages long. So maybe you could sort of talk a little bit about what goes into these and and why kind of and this is all for free, obviously. Why go out and provide all this great intel? Sure. Well, I think um, like I said, it goes back to we have 160 people focused on the space and. There's a significant number of those people that are are in our research and business development group, which is the core of the company where all the knowledge, you know, kind of pervades from, if you will. So a lot of it is, you know, we're doing an enormous amount of, you know, independent proprietary research for ourselves. You know, what's going on in in Africa fintech? There's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of companies. Which are the good ones? Which the ones are growing fast? Which ones are stalled out? Who's getting funding? What segments? You know, Mm -hmm. how does that compare to what's going on in other emerging markets? So. So we're doing a lot of it for ourselves, and then we're taking a sliver of that and sort of, you know, kind of publishing it out into the marketplace. So there's a lot more behind the scenes of, of what we're publishing, and so it's a little bit of a teaser to, you know, what do we know? It's also a little bit of a public service because it's become quite popular, and we've got millions of readers of our research. And, you know, when we publish something, we can see it light up on the screen as it gets opened up and, and looked at and forwarded around all over the world. So... You know, part of it is we just become part of the ecosystem of, uh, you know, what's, you know, what's going on and, mm-hmm. and sort of the, you know, central source of knowledge and, and defining how the space is structured and, and who's doing what around the world. And so, uh, but there's really nobody else out there that's doing this the way we're doing it. There are people that are trying to collect the data or trying to, you know, create, you know, a three page newsletter once a month. But, in terms of, you know, the volume and, and the number of people that we have dedicated to this, it's, it's really unheard of. Uh, but it's actually a lot of fun because we, uh, you know, we get invited to speak to a lot of incredible boards of directors and, and uh, conferences and, you know, special uh, think tank type groups. So um, we got a great team that's focused 24-7 on that. So it's pretty mm-hmm. exciting. Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, let's let's talk about some of the the actual the trends that we're we're seeing today. And I was looking through your last research report, and there's uh, you isolate several things, but one thing that I, I maybe get your get your take on right off the bat, and that is uh, a lot of people talking about this lately. You know, you know, with the big tech entering entering fintech, and you know, obviously we've got Google, Apple, Facebook. They've all they've all been in the news just in the last month or two doing you know, new fintech initiatives. What do you expect to see you know, from big tech going forward? Sure. I think you're going to see more and more convergence between sort of, you know, payments and financial technology and big tech. I mean, you, you, you saw, you know, PayPal make the acquisition of Honey the other day in the e-commerce space. And you saw Google make the announcement about getting into checking and digital banking. You know, we've all seen Apple get into the space with Apple Pay and, of course, the Apple credit card. So I think you're going to see more and more of that. You know, you, you, you've also seen Amazon get involved with lending to its SMBs, and, and uh, they're a little bit behind in the payment space, but uh, catching up. And then, of course, you know, people like Grab in Southeast Asia and Uber here in the U.S., you know, getting more and more into financial services. So. And I think what you're seeing is more of a trend towards financial services and fintech, if you will, kind of pervading every single type of business. So, mm-hmm. 
you know, the money flow is really what keeps businesses going. And whether you're spending money, making a payment, saving money, optimizing an expense, you name it, um, it's just a part it's just a big, big part of, of each and every business and all the flows between customers. And so you're seeing more and more people get involved in it. I mean, I think there's an opportunity more for the big, you know, uh, if you will, e-commerce players, you know, to get in and disrupt the banks. And I, I do think that's possible. Would you rather have, you know, a checking account with, you know, Amazon or, or Wells Fargo? You know, I think that's debatable. Uh, Wells Fargo is certainly a, a, a very highly regulated bank that has had its customer service issues, you know, whereas, you know, Amazon is, uh, you know, off the charts in terms of customer satisfaction. So I think, you know, what a lot of it's coming down to is is data. So, you know, he who, you know, has the most data on the consumer, you know, can probably be helping the consumer uh, manage their finances uh, better than better than, than others. So I think uh, it's, it's long term going to be a data play. Right, right, got it. Okay, so then I think that that points to another, and there's obviously many many companies that you've worked with directly that have a big role to play here. You know, there's you know, companies like Marketa that are that have really created a whole new kind of way of of managing the payments infrastructure, and you know, you've got you know you've got other companies like Bluevine on the on the uh, on the small business side, and I'm just I'm curious about the fact that there's becoming this plug and play uh, type aspect of fintech. It feels like, and I know that um, you know Matt Harris from Bain had a, had a had a pieces out recently of talking about this. And do you think that we're going to see you know beyond just the big tech, but lots of the big brands come and have their own you know their own sort of you know fintech offering in the future? You know, I think, look, I said, like I said earlier, I know the report you're referring to uh, that Matt Harris put out there, huge Matt Harris fan, by the way. But in any event, you know, yes, I think fintech is becoming a bit of a platform, right? There's a view that there was, you know, the internet, there was mobile, there's uh, the cloud, and, and now there's sort of fintech, right? And so fintech being sort of the, the fourth, if you will, horizon of uh, platforms in, in tech. And I, I do think there's a possibility that, that it gets looked at and, and the world thinks about it that way. And we're seeing it embedded in, in all walks of life. You know, you look at what people like Expensify are doing, you know, with millions and millions of users, you know, doing their expense accounts. And now I just read they're launching a, a card platform and I'm sure they'll eventually do payroll and billing and everything else. So, you know, I think there's this concept of getting in and, you know, landing, you know, which particular, you know, enterprise or SMB and then being able to offer them a more myriad of services around financial services or financial transaction processing. The other thing you're seeing a bit more of, and, you know, expense is probably not a bad example of this, is companies that are able to sort of extremely uniquely penetrate both a business ecosystem and a consumer ecosystem. And, and that's where we're seeing some really, really breakout plays. Like you pick the Square, for example, they're going after, you know, not only, you know, 25, 30 million SMBs, but also, you know, going after and already have, uh, call it 20 million uh, consumers using their apps. And so at the end of the day, if they can bring those two constituencies together, you know, you kind of create a super business model around financial services. And and you, you see the same thing with Facebook, where they're going to their consumers, going to their businesses and, you know, basically creating this like, you know, cohesive ecosystem. And I think financial services is helping bring the glue together on that. 
as mm. well. So, mm. right. So, okay, then what? You haven't really talked much about uh, digital banks yet, and that's feels to me like the uh, it's it's the hot sector uh, globally. It feels like right now where you know there's some a lot of mega rounds happening. There's you know lot, there's a lot of customer acquisition happening, rapid growth. And I look at it, I think back to the, the lending days. And in fact, at the time when we first met in person was at Lend It 2015 in New York. And, uh, and that was sort of a, a conference where there was peak enthusiasm for the lending space. And it feels like now we're becoming its peak enthusiasm for the digital banking space. But maybe what, what's your perspective? I mean, a lot of these companies aren't making money yet. Do you, do you think that we're, you know, what, what, do you, what do you see playing out in the digital banking space? Sure. Well, I think the, you know, look, we like the online lending space too, but I always thought that the online lending space had issues just given the, the, the very nature of it being you're, you're, you're lending money out, you're hoping to get that money back. It tends to be a one-off transaction where, you know, two years later when the loan's paid off, the person is going to shop around and get the cheapest loan mm-hmm. from somebody else. And, and people have not really, I think, done a great job in the online lending space, you know, kind of transversing sort of you know, providing a loan to someone to getting a broader customer relationship. I think there were some attempts to do that, but it, it largely failed. And so, you know, on came the digital banks with the idea of, you know, if we can control your checking account, we can uh, have an interaction with you every single day of the week with your spending card, whether that's a debit or a credit card. And then we can sort of collect uh, all sorts of data information. It gets back to what I was saying before about the information game and data game. And then once we start doing that, we're in your checking account. We can see, you know, where your paycheck is coming in and what your monthly uh, and daily expenses are, what your rent looks like. If you lose your job or you get a promotion, uh, we can see that, too, if we're the digital bank. And so I think the idea is that, you know, anchoring the client with a digital banking product and a checking product and a direct deposit product, you know, is a great anchor. And all of us sort of would agree it's, it's, it's fairly rare for you to change your core checking account. So, mm-hmm. But that being said, that's the hardest part to get. I think the idea, though, is that once you have that core checking account and you're pulling all that data, it's not so hard at that point to start offering savings products or other lending products or expense management products or financial advice products. So I think that's where I think there's a bit of a battleground and a bit of a branding battleground as well. And with the banks having things slipped up in terms of customer service, in terms of product offerings, in terms of their digital offerings, it leaves a huge gap for some of these digital banks to come in and, and, and make hay. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things we're seeing is very few of these have, you know, sort of gone, you know, cross border. I think uh, a Revolut is a, is a rare example of someone who's raised a significant amount of money and is sort of, I would say going for it. And, uh, yeah, I love those guys. You talk to them; they're talking about building a trillion-dollar, you know, digital banking platform, which is uh, really exciting. And I wish them all the luck in doing that. But you know, you see a lot of other players that are more country-specific and are focused on building, you know, call it, you know, twenty billion, fifty billion, hundred billion-dollar businesses, you know, in single geographies. And um, you look in the U.S. at companies like Chime and Vara Money, and and one of my favorites being. You know, money lines is sort of helping the the every man, or if you will, the working American. You know, I think there's there's a big dearth of you know financial products out there for for the working American or the the working European or what have you. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of these some of these are are really really helping consumers you know think about you know, saving and spending 
and retirement and things like that. So I think it's digital banking is sort of the moniker people use, but it's more digital financial services hub, right. if you will. So it's, it's maybe a better way to think about it. Right, right. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, along with that, I mean, obviously the valuations uh, that some of these companies are, are attracting – you know, really pretty high valuations. I know you've got the you know, new bank in Brazil and, you know, that are, I think, 10 billion. And you've got many others where you've got, in, in the same time, you've got in the public markets, a lot, a lot of these IPOs have struggled. Maybe obviously Square's an exception and there are a couple other exceptions. But how do you look at, or what, you know, when you're sort of talking with these, these private companies and they're getting these massive valuations and you, then you, you also go taken several companies through IPO, do you see the fact, what do you tell people who are looking to go public as far as valuation goes? Do you think that this valuation is, feels like it's like a, this bifurcation where you've got, you've got two completely separate realities? And I mean, how do you see that sort of correcting itself? Or how, how do you see that playing out? Well, I think, you know, you have to think about what's going on in the, in the, in the public versus private markets. In the private markets, you know, first and foremost, most of the securities uh, that are being sold are convertible preferred. So the downside's protected. There's sort of unlimited upside potential. And, you know, the trade-off there is there's not enough liquidity. There's, there's no liquidity in that, you know, theoretically no liquidity or less liquidity in the public markets. In the public markets, it's all common stock with no downside protection. And you think about the other distinction, the private market, you know, you see all these rounds. It's typically what the the top one or two people in the world are willing to pay after having done a significant amount of due diligence and, you know, under pressure. Whereas in the public markets, you're really only left with a 10K and some 10Qs and some research reports, uh, limited amount of diligence you can do. And, you know, it's sort of the, the equilibrium of everyone who thinks it's a buy and everyone who thinks it's a sell, mm-hmm. right? And so as opposed to whoever thinks it's the, the best company in the world and put the highest price on it, that's typically not the valuation for the public markets. So I think one of the realities of all these private companies when they go in the public markets is like, it's not about what you can convince one person to pay. It's what you have to convince the entire universe to pay. And that, that universe consists of a lot of skeptical research analysts who career, whose careers are on the line and who are going to be, you know, uh, potentially more skeptical than someone who is you know, highly optimistic and has a highly diversified portfolio and has downside protection. So I just think there's a huge difference between public and private markets. And I think, you know, the public markets are sort of the, the ultimate reconciler of, of valuation to some extent. But and we've also found public markets to be quite wrong about a lot of companies. You know, you look at some of these companies that are a bit, you know, uh, out of favor, like a lending club or, or what have you. I mean, look, Microsoft, Amazon, uh, Facebook all had moments where their stocks were down and dropped and no one cared about them, but they continued innovating. And then, you know, later on in life became, uh, you know, massive companies. So I think you can't really count, you know, any of these companies out, you know, but uh, it's what makes the world go around supply and demand. And I think the thing is, you know, you're, you're not seeing a lot of retail investors, you know, pile into these private deals. These are smart, right. incredibly well diligencing uh, companies that uh, are, are making these big bets and they're comfortable doing so. And uh, some, there'll be winners, there'll be losers. And I don't think anyone should be surprised that occasionally someone will invest in a company at a you know, $3 billion valuation that might go public at $2 billion. It's just, that's just, that's just life. And that's just what's going to happen once in a while. It's, that's why it's venture capital, so to speak. So, but some of those are going to go from two million to or two billion to uh, to twenty billion. You look at Square came out of the gate 
Uh, everyone thought it was overvalued and stock, you know, suffered in the IPO moment in time. And you could have bought it for any one of us could have bought it for nine bucks a share and sold it for a hundred, you know, and uh, that was there for the taking for everyone in the space and mm-hmm. put the spotlight on it. So, um, you know, the public market can be a really good thing. Right, right. So when so when you're working with these CEOs, do you encourage them to try and maximize the valuation or is it just a, a case-by-case basis? Because obviously it has some downside if they if they are planning to go in, out in the public markets. I would say when we talk to clients, we let them sort of think about what's important to them. And we're usually encouraging them to think about quality of investor, mm-hmm. um, leaving money on the table in order to make sure you're not overpricing your round. But at the end of the day, uh, the market's a market, and we are getting some great valuations. But, but you know, you, you really don't want to get your valuation too far ahead of yourself because it could be, become difficult to raise future capital. Right. But, yeah, it's all about what the client's looking to optimize. And in a lot of these situations, they're looking to optimize valuation. But, but, but also, out of the same breath, they say, I want an investor that's going to support me through the IPO. I don't want an investor that's going to be good in the boardroom. I want an investor that's going to be supportive of you know things when when things aren't perfect because they, they never are and that that's that's generally where they lean is let's go find the right fit with investors and you know valuation is winds up taking a bit of a secondary backseat right right so i'd like to get your perspective on on softbank because they you know i just saw that just out this morning there's a new deal that they've invested in india and pay paytm and i'm curious about what impact do you think? I know you're talking with SoftBank at our LATAM conference, which will be in the past by the time this is actually published. But I'm curious about what your take is on their impact on fintech. Sure. Look, I think SoftBank is, you know, still a force to be reckoned with, you know, despite some of the, you know, uh, tricky stuff they had to deal with in terms of, you know, the, the WeWork situation and, and Uber and others. But Look, at the end of the day, they're a very, very large, you know, venture capital player. They're taking very, very big risks. They're swinging to the fences. And it is a portfolio. So we can all sit there and look at, you know, the mistakes that they've made. And they have made mistakes. And they'll certainly admit those mistakes. And they're publicizing those mistakes. But I think, look, at the end of the day, they have a chance to move some really big needles and take some big swings. And they're trying to do it all around the world. So, you know, I I sort of commend them for their, their efforts in doing it. But um, I, I think they've also missed a lot of great opportunities. I think they tend to, you know, chase momentum. And there's a lot of really good hidden things out there that they could be looking at. But, you know, it is the vision fund. And so when you do talk to them, and we have a ton of respect for all the guys and gals that we talk to there. I mean, it's like, look, if it, if it isn't something really, really game-changing, then they don't want to spend much time on it. And, um, and like I said, I commend them for that. But uh, in terms of fintech, I mean, yeah, they just invested in Paytm. They're in SoFi. They're in, uh, you know, Cabbage, uh, one of our clients. And, you know, they've done they've done a lot of uh, great deals in the space as well. So, uh, but I, I don't think they're having an overall impact on fintech, to be honest with you. I think they're in a couple deals here and there. But, you know, have they changed the game? Have they king-made anybody, which is a word we hear from time to time? And, and you know, we really haven't, haven't seen that. I mean, Paytm is is doing doing quite well with a, a huge uh, universe of investors, including Ant and others. So I don't think there's any 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 magic SoftBank put in there. And then there's plenty of competitors uh, coming up on their heels in India as well. So, mm-hmm. but no, like SoftBank's got a great place in this world, and and like anybody else, they're going to take their lumps. And uh, venture capital game is swinging for the fences. They probably need to slow down and you know 
lick their wounds and figure out where to go from here. Right, right. Anyway, we're, we're running out of time, but a couple more things I really want to get to. I want to talk about M&A because it seems surprising to me. I'd like to see if you're surprised the fact that you know, traditional banks and have not been very active in, in fintech M&A. Where do you think future M&A activity is, is going to come from? Sure. I think the banks have been, been slow on M&A, but I think you're starting to see some signs of life there. I think the thing that's been most eye-opening to us is the deal that we actually worked on called Assurance IQ, where we sold it to Prudential for, you know, three and a half billion dollars. You know, Prudential being a 144-year-old company buying a company that had only been around for three, three and a half years for three and a half billion dollars. You know, it's actually, uh, you know, uh, pretty, pretty impressive that they had the foresight to do that. And I think when Prudential looks at its business and sees the changes out there in AI and automation and um, online applications and, and what that means globally for insurance, I think they have the guts to go out and, and, and swing and, and actually take a chance on on buying a, a very, very you know, well-heeled, I think, smart acquisition with insurance. And it's something that was probably the boldest move I've seen any financial services company make in the last 20 years. I mean, huh. really, if, if you if you if you do the the research, which we have, you just haven't seen anything like that in 20 years. You look at another deal we did, which is Allstate buying a company called Square Trade. They saw, you know, the world of autonomous cars, and when millennials were not buying automobiles as much and living at home longer, and not buying home insurance. You know, they said we need to get closer to the millennial universe and buy a electronics warranty company, which is what Square Trade was. And so that was a billion five that that, that, that Tom Wilson made over at Allstate, which has worked out incredibly well for those guys. These guys' stocks are up. And that was the thing, going back to the Prudential deal. I mean, I think the common wisdom would be Prudential buys a company for $3.5 billion. It's a tech company that the stock's going to go down. But I think the market realized it was a smart move. The stock went up 5 or 10% even greater than the value of the company over the next couple of weeks. And and it's been seen as a huge success. So I think that transaction has hit a lot of CEOs' radar screens and said, hey, you know, it is, it's not just for the PayPal's and the Amazon's that can go out and do three, $4 billion deals and have their stocks go up. We can do it too if we're smart about it. Mm, I think the thing that I'll throw in there and the value of CEOs doing these deals, I mean, part of that was a billion-dollar-plus earnout for the management team. Um, there's a recognition there that you can't just sort of buy these companies and expect everyone to stick around. you got to think really hard about the team and what's going to incentivize them going forward. So let's, you know, let, let's, let's give them an earnout and let's keep them, you know, motivated for three to five years so there's a transition. You look at another deal we just did in, in Europe where Santander, about 51%, of an amazing company called eBury, another client of ours. And again, these are probably, you know, you look at eBury and Santander, you look at Square Trade and uh, getting bought by Allstate, you look at Assurance getting bought by Prudential, and we start actually stacking it up. These are like three of almost the only transactions where major you know, balance sheet businesses that have been around for uh, you know, almost 100 years plus or minus are making these kind of bets. But you're, you're seeing this stuff and you, and you really haven't seen this up until recently. So you, you could see a lot more of it. Mm, interesting, interesting. Okay, so then when you look at across the sort of spectrum of fintech, and this is, a, this is the last question then, what area do you think is most exciting? What do you think, where do you see the most growth coming from? You know, I'm, I'm probably most excited about, um, well, I'm excited about all the different spaces, honestly, but I, I, I love what we were talking about earlier, the, the Marquettas of the world, 
you know, the, the plaids of the world, the expense advisors, or the ones that are really powering, you know, enterprises to, to, to do more around fintech. I also really like the B2B payment space, companies like Avid Exchange, for example, who, you know, are, you, know you can't think of too many people that are, you know, uh, in, in the business of getting rid of paper checks, right, in, in the B2B enterprise world. And, and, you know, Avid Exchange is leading the space there. So it's just companies like that that are more in the B2B side of things where, you know, uh, where you're seeing a lot of action right now. And and look, I, I love the digital banking space. I love what the Revolut guys at number 26 and Chimes and Moneyline and Varo Monies. I love what they're doing. And uh, I think they're, they're, what's exciting to me is I really do think at the end of the day, fintech is here to help consumers, you know, and help companies be more efficient, which ultimately helps the end consumer as well. And so to me, that's, that's, that's what keeps us motivated to keep going and, and keep building our business. It's, we think fintech space is, is really, really helping people at the end of the day. And that's, uh, that's what it's all about. Okay, indeed it is. I, 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 on that note, we'll have to leave it there. I really appreciate you coming on the show today, Steve. My pleasure, Peter. Thank you and congrats on everything you're doing at London. Okay, thanks. Talk soon. See ya. Bye. Well, that was really interesting, particularly Steve was saying around M&A from traditional financial institutions. We keep wondering when the floodgates will open. Well, maybe, maybe 2020, 2021, we're going to see many, many more deals here. And uh, I think he's obviously provided three examples there. And, you know, I've heard of others that are sort of in the wings that are at the exploratory phase. So it's going to be it's going to be super interesting. And I feel like the traditional financial institutions are not playing as big a role in M&A as I think anyone expected. And that uh, that could be very much about to change. Anyway, on that note, I'll sign off. I very much appreciate you listening and I'll catch you next time. Bye. Today's episode was sponsored by Lendit Fintech USA, the world's largest fintech event dedicated to lending and digital banking. It's happening on May 13th and 14th, 2020 at the Javits Center in New York. Lending and banking are converging and Lendit Fintech immerses you in the most important trends of the day. Meet the people who matter, learn from the experts and get business done. Lendit Fintech, lending and banking connected. Go to lendit.com slash USA to register.